This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we examine how real estate is changing with the pandemic. Today on the show, Vishan Chakrabarti. He's the founder of the Practice for Architecture and Urbanism and now the Dean of the UC Berkeley College of Environmental Design. He was also a New York City urban planning official under the Bloomberg administration. This summer, Vishan and his team released an ambitious proposal with the New York Times, envisaging what Manhattan would be like if private cars were completely banned across the borough. Traffic would decrease by 60%, according to the proposal, and bus commutes would become much quicker. Vishan says the quality of life in the city would soar and it would help create valuable real estate, though he does acknowledge that part of the business community might see this idea as a risk. I started by asking him what kind of reaction the proposal has received. So there's been follow-up from, I think, uh, politicians and some community groups and civic groups, less so from the business community and the real estate community. But I do think there's a lot of interest. And I think it's for... You know, I think it's important to talk about a couple of different aspects of this. One is, as you said, it's just banning private cars. So it's not banning, uh, you know, taxis, Ubers, delivery vehicles, most importantly, buses uh, or bicycles or anything like that. So um, there's still plenty of ways to get around in the proposal. Um, But what it does is it frees up a tremendous amount of space in, in Manhattan. The other thing is, is that even though the proposal centered on Manhattan, it's about the entire region because Manhattan is the magnet for most of the commuter trips throughout the region. So when you eliminate the private car, you actually increase commute times, lower you know, pollution and congestion rates all over the region when you do that to Manhattan. And then the third thing is beyond transportation, and we can talk about this. To me, I really see it as a quality of life issue as as a way for the city to be competitive as we recover from this. You mentioned that you haven't heard a lot from the business community. Why is that? I mean, I, I, well, are you surprised? Were you expecting that you would hear from the business community? I, you know, what's interesting is I'm speaking to you from California. I've heard a lot from the business community out here. Uh, and that's because I think the business community out here is very tech-oriented. And they're a bit future informed. And I think sometimes, especially in real estate, we can be past informed. And what I mean by that is, and it's not meant to be a pejorative, but if you think about the way the real estate community works, one of the primary things they do is they look at what they call comps or comparables. So you value an asset and you say, well, what are all the other assets like it worth around? Right. And so you're, you're always basing your information on what's happened in the past. Right. And so I had a similar experience with this. You know, I worked for the Bloomberg administration after 9-11 and, you know, the real estate community was vehemently against the High Line. They thought people would get killed up there. No one would go up there. Um, Not only is it the most popular tourist attraction in New York City, but it's the real estate community that's actually been the biggest beneficiary financially of the High Line. And so sometimes what I find with my friends in real estate is that you've got to sort of push them into the future. Um, And so, you know, what they're thinking when they read, oh, no private cars, you know, the CEO who signs the lease, he or she probably takes a private car 
you know, I'm going to lose even more business in the face of the, you know, even after the pandemic. And now, now they're talking about something that'll hurt, that's going to hurt me even more. I think it's just the opposite. Most CEOs I know, I mean, I, I run a company of 25 people. I, I know CEOs who run companies of thousands and tens of thousands of people. Their primary concern is how do their people get to work? How do their people, you know, kind of enjoy the city or want to be in the city? Because we're all in a fight for human capital in the business world. Right. And so we're thinking about those smart, young strivers. How do we get them to work for us? And I think this would be a real game changer in terms of getting people that New York business wants in the New York business world, because the quality of life, the way of moving around would be better, faster, cleaner, more equitable, all things that a lot of our younger people really care about today. So you think the real estate community is looking at it as this kind of hippie proposal at the moment? I don't know if they think about it as a crazy hippie proposal, but I do think that it, it, see, look, to be fair to them, they're in a world of hurt right now. I mean, this is a very scary moment for the real estate community. And so risk seems like a hard thing to undertake. And I get that. But I think that the best business people are the ones who take risks, especially in downturns. Um, and those tend to be the people who are the most successful when the next upswing happens. And so to me, what you've really got to focus on is how does a place like New York or any of our big cities stay competitive? Because the thing that will be around after a vaccine eliminates the pandemic is this whole remote work thing. And I'm not a believer that remote work is going to wipe out cities. I, you know, I think if anything, we would all rather be meeting for a cup of coffee or a drink than, you know, interacting on Zoom all day long. But, you know, some businesses, it will definitely be an attraction to have people continue in remote work. And I just think that we've got to think about how does, how do our cities uh, return as a much better version of themselves, not the polluted, congested, inequitable, strife-ridden, you know, kind of bougie chain store-laden places that they were before this pandemic. And so, uh, you know, I, I just think we have to think forward about what would make, what would be a better city that would bring people back. So the proposal has some really great like eye grabbing numbers. One of them is, for example, I believe if you added up all the space that's devoted to cars, uh, that would be an area nearly four times the size of Central Park. So I guess all the space that voted cars in Manhattan, if you added it all up, four times the size of Central Park, which is huge. Like people can really visualize that. But for someone who hasn't like had a look at the proposal or like visualized how it would be and and the way that you can look at it, it's incredibly visual, like you can kind of see it. It's amazingly well done. Walk us through like what what's what are you imagining? What are you envisaging this would look like? Part of why we took this on as an architecture firm is we, we really think that visualization is incredibly important because this isn't just a transportation planning issue. Part of my inspiration comes from the fact that um, my office is near 14th Street. And so when the busway happened on 14th Street, the thing that was just astonishing to me wasn't just that you could ride on a bus and get across town in six minutes. And I was never a bus rider before then because it always took so long. But if you use it on 14th Street, you can get across town in six minutes. You never have to go down into the subway. Your cell phone's on the whole time. You can get fresh air. You can even have socially distanced rules on a bus. Like there's a lot of things you can do. Um, 
But to me, beyond the transportation benefits, what really, really struck out to me were the sort of spatial and quality of life benefits. The city, 14th Street was quieter. It was cleaner. People seemed happier. It was more joyful. There was this sense of like, people were just kind of freely jaywalking because a bus only came every few minutes. And so, and then like my barber, whom I miss, uh, it was on 14th Street. And I said, hey, Dan, you know, did your business go down after this happened? He said, no, 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 my business went way up. No one drives to my barber shop. Right. Um, and like, you know, and so what I realized is that if you expanded that to the entire borough, you would pick up so much space, all of those parked cars that sit on every single street. And one of the things we tried to show in our proposal is all the different things that that space could then be used for little parklets. Um, mid-block crossings for people in wheelchairs and senior citizens, more room for kids to play, a quieter street, uh, drop-offs for Uber and Amazon. But I think the thing that resonated the most that I was the most interested in is we showed this thing on one side street where we said the before and after. And we said, well, in some of the space, you could have proper trash receptacles for trash, recycling, and composting, which the city should be doing. And you wouldn't have the, this sort of indignity of New Yorkers walking by piles of trash on their sidewalks, right? And it's amazing how much that resonated with people. But we also said, you know, you could take the, the template of the bus stop, that's a kind of standard piece of department of transportation furniture in New York City, and you could transform it into other things. We showed up in Harlem where you could have green food outlets. You know, you could have homeless services and community boards could decide what do they want in their community. But the point is, it just, it's a third of the space of New York City, you know, that we dedicate to roadbed. And so if you take private cars away, you've got buses and bikes and Accessoride and all of these things moving around much faster and Uber a taxi. And then meanwhile, you're recovering all of this space for all of these needs that we have that have been, we've been pushed aside when that's, you know, that when you look at the numbers, there's only about a million car owners and there's 8.3 million New Yorkers. So clearly, you know, there's not a proper representation of the majority. Do you like honestly think this could happen or is this the pipe dream? It is very ambitious and it is very forward thinking. Well, look, it's going to take leadership. I mean, one of the things that I think is so important about this idea is it is ambitious, but it's not costly. It's reusing existing infrastructure. And what I would say is that we could start just on the weekends, right? Like, just, just do it for the weekends. Just see how people respond. See how it works. Do it as a pilot test, right? And... I think what you'll find is that it'll be wildly popular with people. You know, look, um, when I was in the Bloomberg administration, um, one of my colleagues was Jeanette Sadek Khan, who she was the kind of guerrilla transportation commissioner who did recover a lot of our city streets for public space. And Times Square was one of, was one of her initiatives. And so she temporarily closed Broadway in Times Square. Before all the nice paving stones and all of that went out, she just temporarily closed it. And um, slowly it became really popular and the traffic survived and the city survived and everyone was fine. And so I think there's a way to ease into these things with sort of temporary measures. 
And other cities are doing this. Like my hero is Anne Hidalgo, who's the mayor of Paris. And she has been doing this all over the city of Paris. And sure, there are people who complain and there are are drivers who complain. And like these things are controversial, but it's wildly popular with most of the citizenry because people need more public space at a time like this. And they just need more nature in their cities generally. I mean, you know, I'm talking to you from the Bay Area that has these crazy fires going on all over it. And, you know, so much of that is predicated on this idea that, like, people need to leave the city to get into nature, right? And so they build homes in nature where, frankly, they shouldn't, and that becomes a problem. If we provided more nature in our cities, if we used our space more wisely, right, even in small ways, people wouldn't have that urge to go out and build sprawling houses out in the middle of the wilderness and so forth. And so there's a lot of reasons why we should try to do things. And so, yes, it's ambitious, but it's not impossible. I think there are certain politicians who are starting to get interested in it because here's what I would ask you in, in, in response to the question you asked me. If we don't do something ambitious, are we going to go back to the same polluted, congested city we had before this pandemic? We have blue skies over New Delhi, India right now. The most, well, was the most polluted place in the world until the Bay Area fires happened, right? Are we going to just return to the way it was? It's like, does that make sense? I question if it is going to go back to the way it was because I just went to the opening of one Vanderbilt which is a brand new office building in Manhattan. It felt very similar to the old world or the whatever the world was. It's a skyscraper. I mean, yes, there is green space there. There is a, a public space in front of it, a plaza, but no one's talking about anything different than what I would have heard a year ago. I was part of the beginnings of that project. And look, I'm still a big supporter of urban density. So I think that's more than fine. I mean, we do need new office buildings and we're, and I think actually people will probably gravitate towards the newer office buildings that have newer ventilation systems and, you know, updated um, restrooms and other things that I think people will be looking for coming out of this. But to me, I think that the change we're talking about is something more fundamental, which is a change to the city's most important building block, which you know, New York City is a city of streets and sidewalks before anything else. It's more important than the buildings. And, um, you know, our, our streets and sidewalks have to work for everyone. And so when I say we need to rethink things, I'm not saying we've got to sort of start from scratch, but I do think you know, the buildings aren't the source of the air quality problems we have in our city. I mean, there are with some older buildings, but for the most part, like a building like One Vanderbilt, it's a very green building. That's not the issue. The issue is going to be how do people get there, right? And how do we move people around in the city? And that's a classic example. Vanderbilt, that little plaza that's opening there, used to be an underutilized street. And it's just, again, it's about rethinking public space and rethinking the way we use our streets in a way that makes more sense for everyone. Let's assume that they're not going to ban private cars in Manhattan in the coming months. So you're saying let's start with the weekends and kind of ease into it a little bit. The thing that has to come with it, once you start moving into, even for the weekend, 
you got to start thinking about how do you pick up the trips that were that used to happen by private car, right? And so there uh, need to be more buses. There need to be more bike lanes. We can do that. It's not like building a subway line. Like adding buses is a fairly easy thing to do. Um, so to me, this is all about will, and it's about you know look. Not that many people own cars in New York City. For a New York politician, they shouldn't be so scared of this, right? I mean, who are they upsetting? They're pe upsetting people in the suburbs who are not their voting constituency. You know, what we need to do in our society is figure out how change doesn't represent loss. Change can represent gain. It's just you got to sell the gain and then make sure it happens. Do you think that there is that, that will there, that political will? I think there's political will among um, newer and younger politicians who represent a newer generation who are willing to look at this differently. Look, my 18-year-old just went off to college. He has absolutely no interest in getting a driver's license. None of his friends have driver's licenses. We've all got to wake up and smell the roses here. You know, we talk as if, like, what I'm talking about is radical and, you know, the, 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 the normal is conservative. The normal is changing really, really rapidly. And if everyone thinks you can just go and do, I mean, look, the world's on fire, literally. The world's on fire. And you, you, you got this idea that we're going to drive a bunch of gas-guzzling cars into the hearts of our cities is such, such a weird 1950s Don Draper idea Right. I mean, there's just there's nothing radical about the idea of having walkable city centers. That's what our city centers were before the invention of the car. I know I loved the picture of um, Park Avenue. I didn't realize, I guess I didn't think Park Avenue was a park. It had this it lovely big park. Just to stay on that point for a second, for the business community who's listening to this, when Park Avenue was originally a park, so it had fewer traffic lanes and the median could be occupied by people. There's great old pictures of this. Cornelius Vanderbilt created the world's most valuable real estate when he did that. The High Line, when we created public space, created some of the world's most valuable real estate. When we created Central Park, we created some of the world's most valuable real estate. So like this idea that this is somehow an anti-business idea is just, it's crazy. It doesn't hold up to history. What kind of, uh, you said you haven't spoken much to people on this side of the country, but where you are, you are getting some feedback. Look, out here, I think people have just a much more visceral understanding of climate change given what's going on. Dream out here that is the opposite of that, which is everyone has their own suburban house and drives everywhere, which is very animating for the West. Um, so I'm not saying that it isn't, but I just, what I was talking about is I think that there's a reluctance on the business community's part to look at something like this seriously. But again, I just remind people that the business community has had a tendency to not look at a number of things seriously until there's a tipping point, that Malcolm Gladwell tipping point, where suddenly it's going to be wildly popular. And in a market economy, when something's wildly popular, the business community takes notice. What would be the tipping point, do you think, for the New York real estate community? The when they start hearing from the people who sign leases that their employees 
don't want to navigate through the private car traffic hellscape every day to get to work. And they don't want to they don't want to deal with the noise and the pollution and the environmental consequences. Um, again, I ground this in the most central thing for any smart business person. They've got to get out of the mindset of people my age who are 55 years old, and they've got to get in the mindset of people who are 25 and 35. Because that's the human capital. Well, they're in the 55-year-old mindset or whatever, but they're also in the bottom line mindset. Right, but this is fantastic for their bottom line. That's what they, again, it's the same thing as the high line, right? Like this is fantastic for their bottom line. You know, where does, think about the, the, what's the most important nugget in real estate? Location, 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 right? So where do you wanna be? You wanna be near a park and a transit stop in New York City. Why is Union Square, Madison Square, Central Park the most expensive real estate in New York City? Because you're near a park and mass transit. There's just so many horror stories that they talk about in New York of bureaucratic red tape. I worked in city government after 9-11 for Mayor Bloomberg. We got a ton done. We did some things wrong. We did a lot of things right. Um, We need activist government. And it's not just about red tape. And we can't... Look, for the business community, we've been living for 50 years under the spell of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, who told us that government was bad. We didn't need government for anything and the private sector was going to take care of everything. Fast forward to a global pandemic and understand that the private sector can't do everything. They can be huge players, but we need smart activist government. It's not about big government or small government. We need smart activist government. The the business community is going to need the government to do thousands of different things coming out of this, which is why the business community wrote the mayor a letter through the partnership for the city of New York to say, look, we need you to, to lead because, you know, it's funny. The business community wants government and regulation out of their way until the moment that they need the government for something. Um, and then all of a sudden, everyone goes to city hall and says, why aren't you doing something? This is something that a government can propose and do. And what's interesting about this is, and we talk about red tape, the city of New York controls its streets almost exclusively. The state and federal government have almost no role in the control of city city streets. City streets are controlled by the city through its police powers. So it's not that much red tape. You know, it's interesting. I had Catherine Wilde on this podcast a few months ago, and she was saying, whatever happens, the status quo cannot be returned to. And by the way, the status quo wasn't so great. Yes, that's right. I think people look to the status quo because a lot of people were making a lot of money a year ago this time and they want to go back to it. And I get that. But what those people need to understand is we've had a global calamity that's disproportionately hit marginalized communities and especially black and brown communities that are transit deserts, that have childhood asthma problems. You know, if people think that just the show's just gonna go on, we're just gonna keep making money in an incredibly unequal and unecological society. That's not what a smart business person thinks. That's not, the, the, the really sharp CEOs that I know, they don't think like that. They try to look ahead and understand that 
we've got to get ahead of these big societal issues, these big environmental issues, or there's not going to be a platform upon which we can make money. Thank you so much uh, for making time. I really appreciate you sharing your insights and, and giving us a sense of the proposal and your ideas for the future. Thanks. It's really been lovely to be with you and I really appreciate the time.